Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Michael Walton. Thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation centered around coronavirus nutrition and general information. It occurred to me watching the news and social media that there is absolutely no information, no conversation at all regarding the use of nutrition and healthy lifestyle practices for increasing one's resiliency against not just viruses, but to improve one's general health and well-being. Now, it's basic knowledge in infectious disease and in fact medicine that a poorly nourished person, whether they are that way because they're old or they have multiple health problems that increase their nutritional requirements, perhaps they have poor diets, whatever the reason for poor nutrition, it increases one's susceptibility potentially to viruses and as well as other infectious diseases, not to mention one can increase your risk of developing all of the common condition that the coronavirus seems to create problems within. In other words, if you're an individual with heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, for example, and other problems, you are more susceptible to a poor outcome if infected with the coronavirus. Those conditions affect tens of, and tens of millions of people. So the potential of the coronavirus infecting a large number of people is almost guaranteed. It would be surprising if it did not. So that's where nutrition comes in. Nutrition will not cure or treat every condition. It may not even help the coronavirus, but common sense and a good deal of medical and nutrition literature suggests that if you improve your nutrition, you should have a shorter period of time that you're sick and could withstand a more severe or virulent viral exposure. But like I said, nutrition has not been studied against the coronavirus specifically. Let me begin first by giving just a brief disclaimer. The information that I'm talking about in this presentation has not been reviewed by the Centers of Disease Control or the World Health Organization or the Food and Drug Administration or any governmental office. This information is mostly obtained from the Center of Disease Control and all of the nutritional information is from me. So in this photo right here, you can see how viral cultures are grown out in a laboratory. It's just interesting to know that the original coronaviruses were discovered in the 1960s and they were small enough to pass through a membrane where let's say a bacteria could not. That's how they knew it was a virus originally. So more about the start of the coronavirus. We know that this particular pandemic likely began in China. The COVID-19, which is the coronavirus, has been detected in over 90 locations at this time of this presentation, including the United States, where it seems to be spreading. The virus has been named the SARS-CoV-2, and the disease it causes has been named the coronavirus disease 2019 abbreviated COVID-19. Now, on January 30th, 2020, the International Health Regulations Emergency Committee, of WHO, the World Health Organization, declared the outbreak of public health emergency of international concern, and I believe that they were right. Now, on January 31st, 2020, Human and uh, Health Services Secretary Alex Amazar II declared a public health emergency for the United States and asked that it aid in the nation's healthcare community in responding to the COVID-ID infectious problem. 
Now, coronaviruses are a large group of viruses that are common in people and many different species of animals, including camels, cattle, cats, and even bats. In fact, the original coronaviruses all originated from bats. Now, it used to be thought that rarely coronaviruses infect people, but it seems that they are more and more. COVID-19 incubation period, it's important to know, ranges from two to 14 days. And an extremely recent study just came out in the medical journal Lancet, said that the coronavirus patients shed the virus, which means they're more contagious, for between eight and 37 days. So COV-19 cases include the following concepts that are important to know. COV-19 is WHO's shorthand for coronavirus disease, novel virus, and the virus itself, as I previously said, is called SARS-CoV-2. Outbreaks of novel virus infections among people are always a health concern, so we need to take these seriously. We also need to know that the coronavirus is far more infectious than the flu. So any comparisons between the two are not really fair. We know we have reported cases in travelers, which allows for the virus to spread across the United States, which gives us our current pandemic. We also know that there are cases of close contacts of a known cause. And then there are community acquired cases where the sources or source of the infection is just not known. It's interesting to note that there are seven known coronaviruses. I won't name them here, but I just wanted you to know that the coronavirus is not a virus. It's one of several. There's an RNA sequence which was obtained from infected US patients, which was similar to the one that China initially posted, suggesting that there's a single recent emergence of this virus from an animal reservoir. Evidence also shows that human coronaviruses may remain on inanimate surfaces for up to nine days. So constantly and appropriately, I shouldn't say constantly, but wash your hands. Symptoms of coronavirus 19 are different from other coronaviruses like the common cold. We have the presence of fever, cough, runny nose, but there are more gastrointestinal symptoms with coronavirus 19, including nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So be aware of these different types of symptoms. And you can get reinfected with the coronavirus, like any virus, because antibodies which protect us against viruses fall during infection. So if you're exposed to the virus again, you might get it. So we have a public health emergency of international concern. And it started in 1960, where they first isolated the coronaviruses. And they knew it was a virus because it, was, it slipped through what's called a test filter. So it was easily identified. And the Chinese isolated a novel coronavirus that caused the current outbreak in 2019, hence the abbreviation of the name of the virus as COVID-19. As deaths escalated in China and worldwide, the World Health Organization had initially met and then they reconvened on January 30th and designated the novel coronavirus outbreak as a public health emergency of international concern, which they abbreviate PHEIC. And I should mention too 
that some are calling China's current reaction to the coronavirus a draconian in scope. And it may be that, but it's also been suggested that they're reacting this way by basically locking down tens of millions of people because of their screw up when they first were attacked with the SARS virus they held it from the world, they did not tell anyone, they tried to hide the infection, and they had patients being treated at military hospitals all as a cover-up. This time it seems they wanna make up for that cover-up. Let's talk about coronavirus outbreaks a little more. So the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the coronavirus, is a beta coronavirus, and like MERS-CoV and SARS. So all three of these viruses, you should know, have their origin in bats. Now, the sequences from U.S. patients I mentioned earlier are similar to the initial ones that China had posted, which says there is likely a single recent emergence of the virus from an animal reservoir. A growing number of patients did not have exposure to the animal markets, indicating person-to-person -person spread. And that's an important point because it was thought it was animal-to-person initially from the Chinese markets. It doesn't seem that that's how it went. Now, person-to-person -person spread was subsequently reported outside uh, China, including the United States, where it's spreading fairly rapidly. More details about coronavirus-19. It probably had a large head start before it was recognized, and it was thought to have spread outside of China even before we knew about it. The virus infects cats, dogs, your pet camel, bats, and other mammals. So it likes mammalian hosts, that's the term. COV-19 is here to stay, I believe. It's not likely to go away because it's become endemic in the United States population. Over two dozen countries at the time of this talk have been affected, which places the pandemic level between a mild to moderate degree. It's thought that perhaps COVID-19 usually peaks in temperate areas like the northern and southern hemispheres in the winter and spring, just like the cold virus. But quite honestly, researchers and scientists really don't know that yet because this is a new virus. It's interesting too to know that COVID-19 favors receptors in the lungs, which is why many people who are infected get severe lung inflammation and can die. It has to do with something called fusion proteins, which the virus favors and are found and interact with the lungs of the patient. Now, as far as a vaccine against the novel COV-ID-19, well, some estimates put it at between 12 and 18 months, but once again, that is um, something that no one can quite predict. Many problems and uh, shortfalls can occur during the development of vaccines, so we can only hope that that happens sooner than later. I wanted to mention something about SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. So SARS was discovered in basically 2003, discovered in bats in China, and it kills about 10% of the people that it affects, and it does not spread very easily from human to human. That's why SARS went away, simply because it was weak in its transmittability or its contagiousness from person to person. Now SARS, I mentioned, was covered up in China and patients were treated in military hospitals. It's much deadlier than COVID-19 with a similar infection rate or what's known as RO or R-naught. In other words, 
The fact that COV-19 is more deadly than SARS means that it could be fewer people affected with COV-19, but more of them will die than those affected with SARS. So SARS was basically wiped out in approximately a year. It did not become super contagious in individuals until several days uh, after symptoms occurred versus COV-19, which is highly contagious even before symptoms happen. I was just asked by someone whether or not they could actually have the virus even though they feel well. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. So the SARS-CoV-2, that's the coronavirus we're dealing with now, has the frequent occurrence with severe acute respiratory syndrome. So in other words, the fact that we have acute respiratory syndrome so often in those affected with SARS has its name be SARS-CoV-2. This is a picture, an actual picture of the coronavirus, which shows its architecture and this structure of it uh, and its characteristics determine how it acts in the body. Let's talk about risk assessment for a moment. So the risk to the general public from these outbreaks depends on a few things. How well it spreads from person to person, obviously is going to help determine its spreadability. The severity of the resulting illness that a person gets also, and the medical or other measures available to control the impact of the virus. So in other words, if a person gets sick with the coronavirus and is hospitalized, they tend to have a shorter course of illness than someone who is not. So access to medical care does seem to matter. It's also practical to know that 80% of COVID-19 infections are mild. As community spread is detected in more and more countries, the world moves closer towards meeting the third criteria, which is now a pandemic status of this virus. So let's talk about that a little further and the death rates and the wide spectrum of disorders that kill one person every 37 seconds in the US. Now, I'm not saying that SARS kills 37, I mean, kills a person every 37 seconds in the United States. I'm saying that the combination of these other chronic health problems together kills someone approximately every 37 seconds. And all of these conditions make a person more susceptible to a more deadlier outcome from the coronavirus. So we know that COV-19 affects people of different ages differently. Between zero and 39 years old, if you're affected, there's a 0.2% death rate. If you're between ages 40 and 49, there's a 0.4% death rate. Between 50 and 59, there's a 1.3% death rate. Between 60 and 69, 3.6%, and between 70 and 79, 8%, and greater than 80, years old, we're talking about a 14.8% death rate. It's very, very high. So death rates are six to 10 times higher than the flu. But beyond age, in terms of susceptibility, you need to think of your individual risk. So if we just look at these ages, and let's say you fall in the age range of 40 to 49. So you have a 0.4% death rate according to statistics. But statistics are not about you. They're about averages. So if you have any comorbid health problems, your risk of death and sickness go way up. Just something important to know. 
Now, what are these conditions I keep referring to that increase your susceptibility to a death and or contraction of the coronavirus? Well, conditions in order of highest to lowest death rates are cardiovascular disease at 10.5% death rate. So 10.5% of people with cardiovascular disease who are infected with SARS will die. If you have diabetes, you have a 7.3% death rate, chronic respiratory disease, 6.3%, hypertension, 6%, cancer, 5.6%. And if you don't have any obvious health problems, then your risk of dying if you get the disease is under 0.1 at 0.9%. Again, these numbers don't include what might be increased risk factors that you as an individual may have. So millions of people have these conditions, as I've said, and thus are at higher risk of death when infected. These are called comorbid conditions, which worsen the outcome when you're infected. And it, it's also important to realize that many individuals have a lot of these health problems. They don't know they have hypertension, a silent killer. They may have cancer. They may have all kinds of health problems going on and not know it. So it's important to have a thorough health uh, checkup. And here's a few charts that, are, that I felt were important to share with you regarding mortality and contagiousness of the coronavirus. The chart to your left has to do with mortality, and the one to your right has to do with contagiousness. I'm only going to spend a small amount of time on this, but basically, how deadly is the coronavirus? Well, compared to some other viruses like Ebola, the coronavirus, which is COVID-19, is much less of a danger in terms of causing death. And we see that even measles is very low down on the list of causing death once you get it at 0.2%. Now, let's look at the contagious side of this chart here on the right. Well, look at measles. It's very high on the list. And according to the World Health Organization, we know that measles is highly contagious. And this explains why. Uh, governmental agencies want people to get vaccinated for measles because if one person gets it, it's very, very highly transmittable and contagious. But according to our little chart on the left, not many people die of it. So approximately 3.4% of people so far will die from exposure to the coronavirus. But coronavirus is, I would say, a moving target at this point. So those numbers of death rates might increase. Okay, so what else might happen? Well, widespread transmission of COVID-19 in the United States is already occurring. The widespread transmission of this virus would translate into a large number of people needing medical care at the same time. So we're talking schools, childcare centers, workplaces, all may experience more absenteeism. Mass gatherings may be sparsely attended or postponed. Public health and healthcare systems may become overloaded and elevated rates of hospitalizations and deaths will likely occur. And other critical infrastructure such as law enforcement, emergency medical services, and sectors of the transportation industry will certainly become affected. Healthcare providers and hospitals will likely be overwhelmed. So at this time, there's no vaccine, we have no protection in, in that regard. There is medical treatment, but it's very nonspecific, consisting of IV fluids and electrolytes, but that does seem to shorten the degree of sickness and may reduce uh, morbidity and mortality further.
Now let's talk about the role of nutrition and immune resiliency and resistance to viral infections. Let me first define a couple of terms. So nutrition includes what you eat. It also includes the use of nutritional supplements, which I believe are important, particularly when we're dealing with health concerns that have extraordinary nutritional stress upon the body. And then resiliency or immune resiliency refers to your body's innate ability to fight infections and to deal with anything considered foreign because that's what your immune system does. And resistance is part of that. So your immune resiliency provides a certain amount of resistance and then you may be exposed to an outside factor like the coronavirus, which that combination of the virus and its strength, it may be more or less resilient from one strand, mutated strand to another, and that contacts your innate immune system. And if your immune system is strong enough, then generally speaking, you will beat that virus and you will survive that infection. So we know that nutrition is one of the most fundamental factors for immune resiliency and resistance to infections. It's old news in medicine. Why it's not being discussed right now is because we're dealing with a crisis and uh, there's a different focus of the CDC and the World Health Organization than nutrition, at least at this time, it, it appears. So I'm gonna talk about the best foods for immune boosting and viral killing and also not what, and, and what you should not eat because there are certain types of foods that can boost immunity potentially and others that can reduce your immune resiliency. And those are not good things. We'll talk about how to use certain nutritional supplements, including vitamin C and other vitamins and minerals, uh, probiotics and phytonutrients or plant nutrients. We want to boost your immune system's antiviral abilities in particular. So I'll talk about certain supplements that have been well studied for antiviral effects. But as I said earlier, no nutritional interventions have ever been studied against coronaviruses, as far as I'm aware. Or at least I should say, this particular coronavirus 19. So I'm gonna talk about some general nutritional approaches, but you must realize that you need to find out what nutrition is specific for you. Based on your current level of health and, and health goals and medical history, you might be taking certain medications that affect your immune system, like chemotherapy, for example, uh, and, and, and there are many drugs in rheumatology and other medical specialties that can cause immune suppression, increasing risk of infection. And so laboratory tests and other types of evaluations would really help you to figure out what you actually need as opposed to you just adhering to some of the general guidelines I'm gonna give you here. But I did make these general guidelines, I think, quite practical and fundamental. So you at least might wanna consider these and then find out what your specific nutritional needs are by seeing someone like me uh, or another who can figure out what your specific nutritional is. Nutritional and health testing to personalize nutrition and the entirety of your health should go a long way in helping reduce your morbidity and your mortality, meaning your risk of death and your risk of disability. As far as masks, just to jump to that for a moment, I didn't want to forget to discuss it. Masks are not considered very helpful in this condition. They don't last very long in terms of their integrity on your face, uh, other than reminding you not to touch your face. There's not much use to them. So, Certainly you wanna be washing your hands, you wanna avoid people that are clearly sick, but even now with the transmittability, remember there are carriers, there are super carriers 
uh, or people that can infect many, many people that carry the virus and they are not sick themselves. So your best bet is to avoid people. And again, I'll direct you back to the Center of Disease Control's specific guidelines uh, for the coronavirus-19. Let's talk about illness severity. Now, the complete clinical picture in regards to COVID-19 is not fully known. So reported cases of symptoms range from very mild symptoms um, with no symptoms to quite severe symptoms, including death. So information so far suggests that most COVID-19 illness is mild, about 80%. And a report out of China suggests serious illness occurs in approximately 16% of people. That's a lot of people. Older people and people of all ages with severe underlying conditions like heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, for example, seem to be at higher risk. But the statistics by some are starting to show that even people in middle age might also be uh, inc at increased risk of infection, not just the older. And younger people seem to be less susceptible to infection, or I should say at least less susceptible to illness. You need to know this term super spreaders. This is the reason why you wanna stay away from people, even though some people around you may seem, or most people might seem perfectly fine. So super spreaders, simply put, are people who can infect a lot of people. And historically, typhoid Maria, Mary that is, was the first person identified in the United States as an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. She infected hundreds of people. And so she actually was a super spreader. And we are going to have people out there now that are super spreaders. It's just inevitable with infectious disease. So let me talk about more the clinical presentation of people who get sick. So among reports that describe the clinical presentations of people with confirmed infection of COVID-19, most are limited to hospital patients with pneumonia. So we're talking about people in hospitals with pneumonia. So these symptoms are going to be more severe than obviously than if you're outside of a hospital. We know that the incubation period is probably between four, is probably about four days. So between two and seven days, the average of that being around four days is the period in which that coronavirus can be in the body and not show any symptoms. Now, some studies have estimated a wider range for incubation uh, period. Uh, data from, uh, for infectious disease for coronavirus suggests two to 14 days is more likely. So let's talk about those symptoms in hospitalized patients. So frequently reported signs, signs of what you see with a patient and symptoms of what they report, admitted to hospitals include fever as the most common symptom, 77 to 98% of people, and then cough at 46 to 82%, myalgia or muscle aches and fatigue, 11 to 52%, shortness of breath, three to 31% at the onset, that's initial onset. And among around 1,000 hospitalized patients with COVID-19, fever was present in around 44% of patients upon admission and developed in 89% of people during their hospitalization. Other less common reported symptoms include sore throat, headache, cough, sputum, production, and hemoptysis, which is coughing up blood. That leads us to risk assessment, I'll explain. So for most people, the immediate risk of being exposed to the virus that causes COVID-19 is thought to be relatively low. But 
people in places where ongoing community spread of the virus that, ca that causes COVID-19 have been reported to be at elevated risk. So if you're around a lot of people, you're obviously at elevated risk of developing an infection, even from asymptomatic people, remember that. Healthcare workers caring for patients are at increased risk. Close contact of persons with the virus also are at elevated risk, as I just said and travelers returning from affected international locations where community spread is occurring are at elevated risk, and those lists keep getting longer and longer. So if you're traveling, pay attention to the infectious lists through the CDC website. So what has the CDC, the Center of Disease Control, done for this infection? Global efforts at this time are focused concurrently on containing the spread and mitigating the impact of the virus, as they should be. The federal government is working closely with state and local and tribal and territorial partners, as well as public health partners to respond to this threat. Now the public health response is a multi-layered one with the goal of detecting and minimizing introductions of this virus in the United States. But that goal has obviously failed, which is easy to predict. You cannot appreciably halt the spread of this virus unless unrealistic steps were taken. That's an entirely other conversation. And even, and even with those sorts of draconian uh, ways of reducing spread, like locking down an entire country like China, we still see that the virus slips out. CDC is implementing all the pandemic preparedness and response plans, working on multiple fronts to meet the, the goals of containing the virus. So here is a summary of some of the precautions. So there's currently no vaccine, as I've mentioned, to prevent the coronavirus, but maybe there will be one in around a year. The best way, therefore, to prevent illness is to avoid being exposed to the virus. The CDC always recommends everyday preventative actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases, including avoiding close contact with people who are sick, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and your mouth, Stay home when you're sick. Cover your cough and sneeze with a tissue, then throw the tissue in the trash. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces using a regular household spray or wipe. And you also want to follow the CDC's recommendations for using a face mask and realize that some of these recommendations may change. So you want to check your CDC website. So the CDC does not recommend that people who are well wear a face mask to protect themselves from respiratory diseases, including COVID-19. Face masks should be used by people who show symptoms of COVID-19 to help prevent the spread of the disease to others. The use of face masks is also crucial for healthcare workers and people who are taking care of someone in close settings, like at home or in a healthcare facility. You want to wash your hands, often with soap and water, for at least 20 seconds. And count out those 20 seconds. It's going to seem like forever, but that's the recommendation, especially after going to the bathroom, before eating, and after blowing your nose, coughing, or sneezing. If soap and water are not readily available, you can use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. Always wash your hands with soap and water if your hands are visibly dirty. As far as testing, there's what's known as a real-time RT-PCR test, and that's the one that you've been hearing about that the CDC is distributing. 
a few more clinical considerations of people that become infected. And there is a fairly good likeliness or likelihood, I should say, that you will be infected between now and around a year from now. Now, among about a thousand COV ID19 infected patients, they had lymphocytopenia, which is low lymphocytes, which are the antiviral cells. Their platelets were low, that's called thrombocytopenia. And their overall total white blood cell count was low, that's called leukopenia. I won't go over the rest of these here now because they're a bit technical. Let's talk about nutrition and immune resiliency and resistance to viral infections. We want to talk about the best foods for boosting, boosting immunity and viral killing and, also not, and what not to eat. We want to talk about how to use nutritional supplements, including vitamins, minerals, and some other antiviral nutrients, and how people with compromised immune systems and other illnesses can reduce their chances with improved nutrition of a worse outcome with the virus. Also, I need to emphasize that all the nutrition I'm talking about here is, is generalized nutrition that may or may not be appropriate for you based on your particular health condition. There may be nutritional uh, drug interactions between medications that you're taking. So you really must seek the advice of a well-trained clinical nutritionist, preferably a doctor who also can do laboratory work so they can put the laboratory work together and with your particular health issues to figure out exactly what you need. So, but why nutrition in the first place? Um, this is an obvious concern uh, to me, but it's not necessarily to others. Nutrition fortifies what's known as our innate immunity and our overall immune resiliency. So in other words, if you have poor nutrition, you are going to be more susceptible to dying of almost anything. Nutrition thus reduces your risk of initial infection, meaning that if you are infected, your chances of doing better are improved if your nutrition is ideal. However, the best way to avoid infection is simply to isolate yourself. Those with malnutrition and malabsorption, a history of eating disorders, uh, older individuals, if you have any chronic health problem at all, all of that increases infection risk rate due in part due to weak immune system. Diet, exercise, your age, are all factors in lowering your immune system. A poor diet lowers your immune system. Over-exercising over can reduce your immune system. Under-exercising can reduce your immune system. And as you age, your immune system weakens and your ability to manage psychological stress weakens, which is another risk factor for uh, poor aging. Major diseases, increasing viral virulence can be improved by fortifying your overall diet and lifestyle with healthier food choices and nutritional supplements. So let's talk about some of these nutritional considerations. So as in general, you wanna eat a diet that's clean. And what I mean by that is they are organic, organic fruits, vegetables, and non-processed foods. You don't wanna be adding other chemicals into your body which might impact your immune system adversely. And if you are then exposed to coronavirus, the situation could be worse for you. You do not want to drink fruit juices because that load of sugar can uh, wear down your immune system, can also promote inflammation and cause other problems with the immune system, which might make you more susceptible to all sorts of health problems. You want to eliminate fried foods. 
eat only free range meats and poultry and eggs whenever possible. And it's probably best to eat plant-based proteins. You want to consider consuming raw nuts and seeds. If you roast nuts and seeds, they become saturated, meaning their fats become saturated fats, which increases heart disease, which is a major risk factor for poor outcome for the coronavirus and overall morbidity and mortality as well. You want to consider eating beans, herbs, and spices. Do not eat vegetable oils. Some cold-pressed Italian imported olive oil is probably fine. No smoking and drink only in moderation. Every single one of these factors, when not adhered to, can impact your health in negative ways. And you then might develop or worsen conditions which are now known to result in increased risk of a poor outcome with coronavirus exposure. So here's a few other factors in terms of healthy lifestyle. Would be eat fish only once a week. More than that, you might overload with mercury, which is an immune depressant. You wanna stay hydrated. Underhydration can impact your immune system negatively as well. Don't overcook your foods because then you'll cook all the nutrition out. Keep stress at a minimum if possible because stress is one of the most powerful factors in life and lifestyle that lowers immunity and increases risk of many different diseases. You wanna cook your meats because you wanna kill bugs and infectious agents that are commonly in our food supply in meats. And you wanna wash your hands as well, as I believe I've noted on, on one of these lists that we're going over. You wanna eat nutrition-dense, low-calorie foods, which are basically in the vegetarian categories. And then you wanna take whatever vitamins and nutritional supplements based upon your laboratory work and also the expertise of your clinical nutritionist and their experience. So let's talk about some specific nutritional supplements that might be impactful for improving overall immunity and reducing overall morbidity and mortality uh, that are found in foods and also might help if you take them as nutritional supplements in addition to your healthy diet. Vitamin C. So vitamin C is known to be an antiviral agent. It improves white blood cell motion, which uh, includes the lymphocyte white blood cells, which are the ones that help attack viruses. Vitamin D3 is an immune booster. Vitamin E is also an immune booster. Zinc is an important one as well. I'll talk about that a little bit as we move uh, on to the next slide. Uh, black elderberry has been shown in a number of studies to impact the influenza virus and is an immune booster as well. NN-dimethylglycine, not as well known of an immune booster, but it is. And also larch tree, which contains a compound known as arabinogalactin, which are immune modulators very well studied for helping boost the immune system. And when I say boost the immune system, I mean to help support your overall nutrition. And if, you, and if your immune system should be low, then these nutrients and foods may help increase them. And then there's beta-1,3 glucan, which is from baker's yeast, astragalus, which is an herb, and maitake mushrooms, particularly the PD fraction of them. Here's a study that was one of uh, 180 participants where they used elderberry, and they found that elderberry substantially reduced upper respiratory symptoms in virally infected patients, although not the coronavirus 
that we're dealing with now. So given all of this, even though these are not direct studies with the infection today, they are reasonable and safe to consider in overall health at this point, at least in my opinion. There's berberine, which is a plant product, which has broad spectrum uh, antiviral abilities. Caprylic acid, which is known as a medium chain triglyceride with antiviral, antibacterial, even antifungal effects. And that's made in your intestinal tract when you eat fiber. The bacteria in your intestine act upon the fiber and then produce caprylic acid. And it can also be taken orally as a supplement. And then there's olive leaf extract. And this is a, the, the olive leaf contains a compound known as uh, polyphenols, or it actually is a polyphenol. And they have antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and antioxidant properties. And these properties, I suspect, would be very good for the current coronavirus problem, not to mention other viruses. There then is grapefruit seed extract, which showed inhibitory activities on the influenza virus and many other infectious agents, as you can see from this slide. Garlic is an old one that's known to help modify the immune function and increase several different important aspects of our immune systems, because we actually have more than one immune system. Pumpkin seeds as well, and thyme extract, antiviral against uh, herpes virus two. Not the coronavirus, I understand that, but similar actions might work in newer viruses. We don't know. And then there's thyme extract as well and oregano extract. Now, there may be a number of reasons, as I mentioned earlier, that some of you may not want to take these herbs. You might be on medications that uh, could be interfered with uh, negatively by taking some of these. So it's important that you get the proper guidance. Now, in terms of zinc, zinc deficiency is strikingly common among the population, affecting up to a quarter of the population in developing countries. And uh, there's about 175 or so enzymes in the body that depend on zinc. And enzymes run and control the rates of a variety of chemical reactions. So you do not want to be deficient in zinc. Now, consequently, as I've written here, Zinc status is a critical factor that can influence antiviral immunity, particularly as zinc deficient populations are often most at risk of acquiring viral infections such as HIV or hepatitis C virus. And it may also lend itself zinc deficiency to increased risk to coronavirus 19. And then there's one of my favorite supplements, N-acetylcysteine or NAC. It was shown that NAC treatments simultaneously suppressed viral replication or growth and inflammatory response in the heart. And cardiovascular disease is a major factor in a worse outcome of coronavirus 19 infection. And there's all sorts of other reasons I've written on this slide, including the reference that NAC should be part of everyone's protocol unless there's a reason you should not have it. For example, it should be taken at least an hour away from zinc, if you take both. Now, I'm gonna give you a brief overview of some tests I think are fundamental for your overall health assessment to get at what nutrition and lifestyle factors you need personalized so you have the strongest immune system possible and reduce your overall uh, risk of morbidity and mortality from anything. 
you'd want to consider, as I've written here, a body composition test, because that test will tell me the percentage of muscle, water, and fat in your body and your metabolic rate, among other factors, and those help figure out what your calorie intake should be, what your protein, healthy carbohydrate, and fat needs are. And as you get healthier, you should have a greater lean body mass, and that will be measured and verified by a body composition test. It's entirely non-invasive. And then there's your blood pH. The pH of your blood affects various enzyme reactions. And if your pH is too high or too low, it can cause many problems in the body, including weakening one's immune system. Problems with pH in the blood can occur from everything from renal disease to heart disease to lung disease and other health problems. And you may not know about it. And then you might have your vitamin C levels checked, your vitamin D levels. You might think of getting a complete blood count or a CBC and a complete chemistry, along with an iron storage and inflammatory marker test called ferritin and an infectious disease inflammatory test called C-reactive protein cardio. Then there's a test known as a cardio beam test, which involves putting a mild electric current through the finger, which then goes throughout the entire body's cardiovascular system and lets us know how hard your arteries are and gives a whole bunch of other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, even tells us how old your cardiovascular system is biologically compared with your chronological age. So any nutritional improvements that you do, lifestyle, exercise, whatever it is, nutritional supplements, it needs to result in a very good result on a body composition test and a very good improved result on a cardio beam test, not to mention the other tests that I've mentioned. Heavy metals can disrupt the immune system. And then given your specific health problems, there may be specific nutritional tests that I would wanna see that tell me what exactly you need. So I wanna thank you very much for joining me for this presentation. I know it was a lot of information, but you stuck in there, not like you had a choice. If you have questions or concerns, please give me a call at the following page at 914-552-1442. You can email me your questions and concerns uh, to info at blooddetective.com. And on my website, on the main page, under the search bar, you can search any amount of topics that you'd like and you'll find lots of videos and radio shows and content, content that are meant to help improve your overall health and well-being. My name is Dr. Michael Wald and thank you so much for joining me.